Hey buddies, how's it going? I hope everyone's doing well. In today's episode, I speak with former Judge Lance Hamner. He was also the prosecutor here in Johnson County for about 18 years, about 13 years ago, I do believe. And since then, he was the judge and recently uh, left that position to pursue a campaign in the prosecutor's position for Johnson County once more. So in this episode, we talk about things on... His, uh, his campaign that he's been doing, we talk about things that he's passionate about for himself as possibly the new prosecutor for Johnson County and his message of what he wants to deliver. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy it, leave a little like, comment. And subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to this on any other podcast platform with Spotify, with Apple, go ahead and subscribe to the channel. That way I know that you enjoy this. That way I can keep making more content. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Well, Lance, thank you so much for coming on, sir. I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Thanks for having me. With me. Yeah, beautiful. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about uh, a little bit about your history, where you're from, where you went to school, and then why Indiana? Okay, um, first of all, uh, my family goes back in Johnson County, back to right after the Revolutionary War. My great-great-great-grandfather came out here, and he homesteaded in Indiana. Um, and my dad was born and raised here, but he joined the Air Force. So I was born on a military base in Fukuoka, Japan, and then lived all over the world for a little bit. He got out of the Air Force in um, the mid-60s, and then we came back to Indiana from there. And, I w- and then we moved around a little bit because his job was getting solidified. And uh, so I went to several different schools here in, in Indiana, all of them right in this area. And what did your father do in the, when he was in the military? He was in the Air Force. Air Force. Yeah. And um, he came out as a master sergeant. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's very impressive. Yeah. That's very cool. How did that make you feel that he's well, a master sergeant? It w- the thing is, it was fun to live on military bases because I loved airplanes. <laughs> so I got to see airplanes all the time. We were... Um, we were in Japan at the, at the height of the, um, the Vietnam War, so um, being an airplane fan, I got to see fighter jets and cargo planes and things like that, and it was just, it was, it was fun to see, even though we were very concerned. As, even as young kids, we knew what was going on over there. So in a certain way, we lived it like adults because we saw people go over and not come back and things like that. But um, as a child, I did get to see a lot of cool airplanes, and I did enjoy that. Very cool. And um, so where did you grow up at and then decide why did you want to become a lawyer? Um, I was I grew up in. My dad got out of the Air Force when I was about 11, and that's when we came back to. Let's see. About 13, we came back to Indiana when I was about 13. And um, so I went to a couple of schools here in in um, central Indiana, in Shelby County. And um, then we went to, um, my dad's job moved him to Tennessee for a couple of years, came back. I graduated from high school. And then I worked in, worked in Edinburgh, um, making veneer at the Edinburgh plant, uh, Amos Thomas. And then I worked at what used to be called Rexham, which is a flexible packaging plant that's on 31, uh, right up there. Well, it's right outside Edinburgh on, on 31. And um, I worked there, and then um, I went out and did missionary work for two years. And then I went to, um, I met a girl out in Utah, and so I went to college out there to Weber State University. 
and majored in criminal justice because I got on the police department, worked my way through college as a police officer. That took me about five years doing it that way. You know, you're not going full time. We started a family, and so you just didn't have the option of just being a full time student. And then we had a deal that when I finished um, college, that we would come back to Indiana because this is our our home and where we wanted to make a home. So we came back to Indiana and lived in Greenwood. So why why and Indiana? why well first of all why Lord you ask me that yeah. um, when I was a police officer I wanted to I watched cases being tried and I just thought I want to do that I can do that and so um, I applied to law school and was admitted to Indiana University School of Law and um, that took me I was I did an accelerated program so I could get done quicker and I got done in two and a half years. Oh, wow. So came out of there, worked at a big law firm, and then went to the prosecutor's office. The The short story on that is um, I'd heard the prosecutor's office here in Johnson County wasn't, wasn't quite up to snuff, so I worked for Steve Goldsmith up in Indianapolis. And I decided that I could come down to Johnson County at some point, run for prosecutor, and fix the office up. And um, it turned out it happened a lot quicker than I thought it was going to happen. So in 1990, I ran for prosecutor and won, and then I was reelected. I was elected then. I was reelected four more times as prosecutor. So I served a total of 18 years as prosecutor in Johnson County. Do you know your, your case win record from that amount of time that you served as prosecutor, or is that something that you guys don't normally keep track of? I, I don't know a whole lot about this stuff I'm learning. Well, during that 18 years, we put more... Uh, killers <clears throat> away than any other prosecutor in Johnson County history. And we, we um, just because it's what happened, we had some really high-profile cases that got national attention, <clears throat> including the Overstreet case. He's on death row now. Um, we had um, an individual named Timothy Greer. He got life without parole, and he... Um, how do you say this? He finished his term because he did die in prison after mm -hmm. he was he was given a, a life without parole. We um, during my term as prosecutor, we're the only prosecutor in Johnson County history to ever put somebody on death row or to put somebody in prison with life without parole. And we did two of those. So um, I think we were very successful putting away killers, never lost a homicide case and got guilty as charged convictions in all um attempted murder cases that brings up a question that just popped into my head um how important it is to, how important is it to you to have relationships with different departments as you with as a prosecutor because obviously in johnson county we've got you know barsville we've got center grove or white river we've got greenwood we've got franklin right like what what is that to you with the chiefs or supervisors of those departments thank you one of the things that one of the platforms I ran on when I ran for prosecutor is I would bring training to the, to the police departments. And you're a firefighter, am I correct? Yes, sir. I also brought training to the fire department. I bet you didn't know that. Mm -mm. We brought them uh, arson investigation. Um, we had one of the top arson investigators in the state of Indiana come down and went through an entire program for the firefighters. But during the, my first term as prosecutor, actually my first year as prosecutor, we did, I think, 12 training programs several a lot of them right there at the police department itself teaching them about search and seizure which is i think the the heart i don't think i know it's the hardest thing that police officers have to learn because it's all about the fourth amendment 
make a mistake in your search, make a mistake in your seizure, the evidence gets suppressed, you lose your case. And um, how I got interested in that, actually, and why that's my thing, is because when I was in the police academy, they told us, they terrorized us. I don't know if they terrorized you guys in fire service, because I also went through fire academy, but Mm -hmm. they terrorized us, you can get killed doing what you're doing. They did that in the police academy too, but they also terrorized you that you could screw up and lose a case and it would be on you. And the way they said the best way you could screw up is by doing a search illegally or doing it incorrectly. So I paid really close attention. Um, It's why I changed my major to criminal justice when I was in college. And then when I got out of law school, I still had this interest in search and seizure. And um, I started doing training for police departments on it. And as my outline grew in this area, at some point I realized my outline was over 150 pages and I could turn it into a book. And so I contacted one of the major legal publishers, um, Lexus Law Publishing, and said, I don't know if you'd be interested in an Indiana book on search and seizure, but I'd be willing to write one. And without even an interview or a, a question, they sent me a contract, and that's why I have I wrote the book on search and seizure in Indiana. Really? Yeah, and the... And um, the interest, the the fun thing I think is, a lot of people don't realize because it's used by judges, by prosecutors, by lawyers throughout the state, but it's also used by police officers because I wrote it for police officers. Originally, it was written for police officers so that they could understand the, some of those technical points in um, in search and seizure law, so they would never make that kind of a mistake. So we put on all that training. And um, I had an opportunity to meet with all of the um, chiefs of police, the sheriff, and ask them what kinds of things they would like to see. So I put on training in interrogation law, which is also it's very similar to search and seizure law. In fact, there's a lot of places where it, um, the, the rules are coextensive. And um, we put on interrogation law, uh, search warrants, searches without warrants, arrest law, all of that stuff falls under the Fourth Amendment. So um, I still like it. It's kind of a hobby. I still write the book. I've, it's in its, my book right now is in its eighth edition. We're getting ready to put out a ninth. Whoa. Yeah, that's it's, pretty, it's what I do. That's pretty impressive. I Thank think. you. Um, so when you talked about the officers that are completing these search and seizures with like obtaining warrants and stuff, would that require you to be there for when they do those? Or do you, do you have the choice or the obligation to go no, to those this to make stuff, sure they do their, their Good job? question. No, it's a really good question. Uh, day in and day out, they're doing it on the street with very little time to prepare or ask questions about it. They Lots of times they have to make a chase or they have to, they have to grab somebody and wrestle them down and they have to know whether they have probable cause to make the arrest and they have to search a car and they need to know whether they can do that without a warrant. Sometimes they're out on the street and they would, they would call me up or they'd back in those days we used a pager. They would page me and uh, then I'd ask questions, answer questions for them out on the street. But most of the time they were well-trained and they knew what they were doing. However, the um, Indiana court of appeals has let the courts and the police know that they prefer that when a police officer seeks a search warrant, that they work through the prosecutor so the prosecutor can give them advice on and, um, and uh, oversee what they're writing to make sure it's going to meet the constitutional standards. And so um, 
I was always on call. The first 12 years I was prosecutor, I was the on-call person for all of the police. And then at some point, I had one person in my office I felt was well-trained, and I made him first on-call, and I was the backup on-call for the last um, six years that I did it. So I was pretty much on-call for 18 years on those issues because failure is not an option. Mm -hmm. So... When you were a prosecutor, I asked this question to another person as well, um, to the opposing <clears throat> candidate. How does your family and your wife feel about you being uh, even running for prosecutor again? How do they feel about it? Um, first response is my wife's like, what? Another <laughs> campaign? Why would you do this? <laughs> and my, my answer to her was, somebody's got to do it, that the office needs fixed. And um, so instead of gliding on to... Uh, four more years and retiring as a judge, I decided I actually had to resign as judge. That's required by law. You can't run for an office while you're a judge. Resign as judge and then run for prosecutor. But when I explained to her what was going on, I was seeing him lose too many cases. I was seeing um, bad judgment being made. I watched as a judge when I was on the bench. Um, when I explained that to her, she's, you got to do what you got to do. She remembers my dad's words to me when I ran the first time, if not you, then who? And the answer is no one. So I felt like I had to do it. So you were the judge for Johnson County's courts. So uh, Yeah, we have um, three criminal court judges. I was one of the three criminal court judges. I also had more criminal cases than all the other criminal courts because in addition to one-third of the felonies, three courts, three felony courts, I also had all the misdemeanors. So I did have more criminal cases, and I did that for 13 years. I need to take a little sip. Oh, yeah, you're fine. So with you being the judge for about 13 years, what were some of the cases that have really stuck out to you that you had to come to a decision to for uh, the the crime or the, the punishment for the crime? So what were some that have stuck out to you in the last 13 years? If you can quickly You just talk about highlight cases? Yeah, highlight cases, yeah. Um, You know, when you ask a question like that, immediately I start to feel sad because the ones that you think about the most are the the saddest cases. And um, And if you don't want to share, you don't have to. I'll I'll just tell you. I mean, when it involves uh, a child being hurt or a child being killed, then it's a a really sad um, kind of a case. And so... That's, those are the first ones that come to mind. But <clears throat> I also remember, and the happiest part of my job as a judge was when I would have um, people who had come through my court. There's different kinds of people come through the court. Most of the people are not bad or evil people. Some of them are. They're very bad and very evil. But a lot of people just have... Um, they're just kind of messed up. They have a drug problem. They have an alcohol problem. They have an impulse control problem or they weren't properly brought up and they don't know how to behave in certain ways. Lots of times I felt like I was a dad second parenting people who had just simply been raised wrong. And I would have father and son chats with young men and say, this is no way, excuse me, this is no way for a young man to behave. You need to turn this around and I'm going to see you turn it around. And then I would give them a sentence and then at some point... When, they, when I felt like they'd learned a lesson, then I could lighten it up just a little bit more and a little bit more. And over and over again, I would have these guys come back to me, write me the nicest letters saying, thank you for what you did. Um, thank you for caring enough to be hard on me. 
thank you for caring enough to let me know that you did care. And so they would want to, they would come back and you could see on their face they wanted to please you. And um, so what's the best part of the job is watching somebody turn their life around and become a productive, happy person. And that's what I used to tell them. I would say, if you do all of these things, if you stop doing the bad stuff, if you get the drugs out of your life, if you stop being, um, and grant you, if they're addicted, they have to learn to deal with that. But they can, they can do it. And if you get those things out of your life and you get a good job, good training for it, you can have a happy life and literally not have to worry about um, making a mistake that's going to throw you back in jail. To see these guys come back with that excited, happy look on their face, and, and it happened again and again. Most recently, we, uh, my wife and I were at a restaurant, and um, we were going in there for a, actually a political meeting. And as we walked in, a young waitress came up and she says, Judge Hamner, do you remember me? And I did recognize her, and, and, but I, was, I couldn't remember specifics about her case. She goes... She goes, you saved my life. And then she explained, um, and then I remembered her case and all the things that we had gone through together. And, um, and it actually was only the second time in my career um, or during my judicial function career that um, since I've, I'm not judge anymore that I could actually hug some of these people. So she gave me a hug. Um, I went to a, uh, another you can't hug if you're a judge. Yeah. It's kind of hard to do that. Is it real? Yeah. You're sitting up on the bench. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. So, and, yeah. and it would, and it just, um, you do have to maintain the, the, um, professionalism. Yeah. Okay. Professional, fair and impartial. And, and, um, that's gotta be tough. I'm a big hugger. But some, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you're so proud hugger, of them. Yeah. You just look at it and you just think, you know, you're giving them a, a, a mental hug. Like this, mm-hmm. this is like. This young person is responding to me like my own daughter. This is responding. This person's responding to me like my own son, and I would be so proud of them. And I would tell them that. Um, I can't tell you, Matt, how many times. Um, <sighs> Got to get the emotion out of this. How many times um, I'd be talking to somebody, and I would say, "I want you to get better. I want you to have a good life. Do you understand that I really do care?" And you think. They would just look at you, nod, you know, and go along with it. Sometimes they would openly weep because nobody ever cared before. And um, I did miss that part of being judge. Um, uh, my wife and I pulled into a McDonald's um, a while back. And as we went through, this young woman says, Judge Hamner, I got a job. And it was the first job she ever had because one of the things I would tell these young people, you need to get a job. You need to get to work. The reason why you're messing up is because you spend all your time doing nothing. The devil finds work for idle hands or mischief for idle hands. And I would make them go out and get a job as part of their probation. I would make them keep the job. And it's amazing how these people would be so proud of themselves. And why? Because they're actually being productive. It's what we as human beings, as children of God, it's what we want to do is be good, decent, productive people, and it makes us happy. That's why when I would tell these folks in my court, if you do all these things, you're going to be happy. When they would come back and talk to me, that's exactly what they would report back. I'm actually happy now. So very rewarding part of the job. 
I was just typing down a question, so I wasn't ignoring you. No, that was a, a long you. answer to a short question. No, it's go perfect, ahead. But it seems like, and now don't <clears> please <throat> don't take offense to this. I know that you're running for the county prosecutor, but if you, it seems like you've made a huge impact on young people's lives when they were when they were being disciplined for their actions. But it was very rewarding to you to see them change their life. And it seems like, it. You, I mean, obviously you're very caring about that aspect of it. But why leave that? Because it seems like that was real change that was being made. Right. Why leave that for the prosecutor? You might have answered this before, for the pro- prosecutor's p- position to where you won't see that as much anymore. At least I don't know if you will or not. Actually, a prosecutor can do those things. They can? Um, they, okay. Yes. But the, what I was watching as a judge is I simply was watching them lose too many cases. And I saw cases that were being handled that I didn't think <clears throat> the proper focus of protecting people was the was was what the prosecutors were thinking about at the time. Um, I felt like many times they were just processing the case because it was part of the job and um, and not putting the human aspect into it. And most importantly, I didn't see them winning cases. I thought they should win. Um, and when you lose three major felony cases in a single year, uh, we never did that in 18 years. So um, I wanted the prosecutor's office to start winning again. And that's the reason why I decided I needed to run. So what is your role in, a politi- in, in politics? One, as a judge, and then for the second part, if you do get the position for a county prosecutor, what would be what is your role in politics? Um, my role in politics is it's not a um, it's not that I'm a that I'm into politics per se. It's that these are elected offices, and if you want to work in this system and to um, affect change in these systems, you have to be elected to be able to do that. So, um, in order to be I don't know if that's answering your question, but in, in Indiana, if you want to be a, a judge or a prosecutor, you have to run for that office. Okay. That answers my question. The, it, you know what? Oh, it, yeah, it might, um, that might confuse some people because there are some judicial positions that are not elected. For example, we just selected, um, or they just s- are going through the process right now for selecting a new Indiana Supreme Court justice. Those are not elected. Those are appointed by the governor. Okay. So in, in some types of judicial positions, they're appointed. For, we also have magistrates in Johnson County, and those are appointed by the elected judges. So you elect the judge, then the judge appoints magistrates. Um, at the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals level, those are appointed by the governor after the Judicial Nominating Commission has narrowed it down to three people. It gets down to three people, then the the governor picks one of them. So that's what's going on right now. You'll, okay. if you watch in the next couple of weeks, I think you're going to see a, a new Supreme Court justice selected for Indiana. For, for Indiana, okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, justice Stephen David retired a few months ago, about the same time I did, and um, so his position came open, and there the governor is going to have to select a new Supreme Court justice. Do you think at some point you'd ever go for a position like that? Or is it too early? Is it too no, early uh, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, no, I never, I never really wanted to um, do the, the uh, Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals, and the reason is because they're focused solely on the law. Um, they don't see live cases. They read the briefs and they decide whether mistakes have been made, and if they have, then they they'll send them back to the trial courts. I really enjoy the 
personal aspect of seeing live people in my court and dealing with them. Same thing with being a prosecutor. I enjoy being in the courtroom and and um, handling live cases one-on-one. Because at some point it takes somebody that has empathy that is going to be either a prosecutor or a judge to try to understand, in my eyes, to try to understand where that person went wrong in their life. Now, maybe that's a role for another party to be playing in, but I would assume that like for me, I'm very like, I'm a very empathetic person for people. And I'm like, man, like you just had a horrible upbringing and you just, you didn't have your parents in your life or you had something like traumatic happen to you. Like I would feel very sorry for a lot of people, but when you were the judge, um, or let's just go with prosecutor. Was that ever when you were prosecutor, you know, uh, eight, 13 years ago or 18 years, right? 13. Um, did that ever play a large role into how you tried before a jury? Is that what it was called? Yeah, try a case before a jury. I think what you're asking is, do you ever feel sorry for the people you're prosecuting? Yes, yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I mean all the time. You you constantly think, um, you know, if this guy had just had a dad in his life, if this guy had just had a, um, a, um, a mom who cared... Um, and and you think, how many people, how many people have such a, a bad upbringing that that's the case where they don't have anybody that cares about them? And the reality is, you see them in the criminal justice system a lot because that's why they're there. I had a, a case one time. I was working a, a murder case, and two of my witnesses were guys that were in prison, mm. and they'd been in prison. They were what the the inmates themselves refer to as lifers. These are guys that they're spending, they were institutionalized. They were spending the better part of their life in prison. And one of them, as I walked in to interview these, these guys as witnesses, one of them turns the other one. He says, tell him. And I go, and I said, tell me what? And he goes, now you tell him. And I said, no, tell, tell me what's going on. Tell me. Now remember these guys were in prison and I was interviewing them in an institution. And, One of them, the one guy turns to the other one and he says, as you were walking in, now I'm not in any way, how does this, how do I say this? I'm not in any way saying this to hold myself up as, as somebody who's special. I'm one of millions of what I consider to be a good dad, just a good dad. And um, because I tried, I cared. I, I wanted to raise the best kids I possibly could. I was always there for him. I was home there for him. Um, so the one turns the other one. And he says, yeah, when we saw you walking in there. I go, there's a real man. If I'd had a real man in my life, I wouldn't be here. Now, these guys are saying that, and they're saying it kind of... Um, how do you, how would you describe it? They're saying it kind of man to man, you know, like we can talk, uh, we're going to testify for you and we're going to, we're going to work on this case. So we're just going to tell you the truth. And that's what we were talking about. But me not having spent time in prison and not having been in cells with these guys for years and years, like they had experienced, I looked at them and tried to imagine um, here they are they recognized 
that if they'd have just had a better, different upbringing, they wouldn't have been there. So yeah, that, that makes your heart, it rips your heart out. And, um, interestingly, the one guy was in there for a, a long drug dealing, um, and he finally, uh, uh, sentenced and he finally did finish his sentence and he got out and I kind of lost track of him. I hope life turned out well for him, but it was, um, I went home and that day I went home and told my wife, I said, man, you know, you really feel sorry for these guys to be where they are when they themselves recognize that, um, if we'd have just had a little bit of a, of a, a fatherly influence, uh, keep us away from the gangs, keep us away from the bad guys. Maybe we wouldn't have been here. And so again, long answer to a short question, but yeah, I used to feel sorry for a lot of people like that and always tried to help them. And by helping them, I mean, if they had a, an addiction, let's get them some treatment for it. If they have an alcohol abuse problem, let's make sure that they can get into some kind of a program where they can get that taken care of and don't get on the road and drive in any, in any event. So um, first and foremost, we have to protect the public, but we also have to remember that these, are, that these people are human beings and children of God, and if you can get them on the right path, you've done a double good service. I couldn't imagine the roller coaster of emotions that you as a judge at the time and then also as prosecutor pr prior had to feel and go through. That was something when I talked with another person as well, that was, I brought that up. I'm like, I just, I can't, to see, like, to think about, you know, I, if, if I was raised differently, I could be standing right where that guy was. Exactly. What you're saying is, is the old there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I think we've all experienced that wondering what would have, what would have happened to me if I hadn't had a good dad taking, you know, leading me in the right path. And, um, and then what could these other folks, how could they have turned out if they had had a little better upbringing and, and some, some good examples to, to emulate, but yeah, it's tough. That is, it sounds like it's really tough. Um, when you were in your position as prosecutor before, if you remember this, it'd be great, but if you don't, it's okay. How many hours a day were you putting in as prosecutor <laughs> in Johnson County prior? Um, I know this, I felt guilty lots of times when I would come home when it was dark. Okay. Um, and I would get, I don't want to say I got yelled at, but I would have, my wife would remind me, you know, the kids are going to be in bed if you come home at certain times. So you need to be home. And I, and I worked really hard to, to do that. But I do think that there were times when you get involved in your work and, and there's just no end to it and you stay a long time. But if you go actual hours, I would say nine or 10 hours a day. And lots of times, like I said, you get those phone calls at night and then you're up all night. And um, I would have a police officer call me up at two o'clock in the morning. That's when he needs a search warrant. If he needs that search warrant two o'clock in the morning, that's when you have to do it. And the officer would come over and we'd sit up on my computer and I would type out, help him type out the, the affidavit. And that would take an hour or two, um, sometimes as long as three or four hours. Um, give me a late start and a tired start the next day. But... Um, you work around it, you know, you just work around it. It's, it's like any, um, it's any other real hard job that you love a lot. You don't hate doing it, but you have to, but that's the way it has to be done. If you don't do it that way, it just doesn't get done. So a lot of hours and, um, 
I was always afraid to go on vacation, literally always afraid to go on vacation because something would happen that I would feel like um, needed my my personal attention or review. And um, I think in the 18 years I was prosecutor, I think only twice did I ever go on a two-week vacation. All, all the others were just a week. Really? Many times we would go someplace, the kids would stay for two or three weeks with my wife, I would stay for a week, and then I would come home to get back to work. And that was just a way of life. It's kind of like, I don't want to compare myself to military, but it's kind of like military where you know that um, having grown up in a military family, um, you just know that, that um, if you have somebody that's in one of those kinds of services, they can't always be there all the time. And so you do as, as best you can. So with you talking about not being able to take vacations and take time for yourself, hardly ever, how did you deal with the stress of your position? What ways did you cope with constantly working all the time? Because obviously I lost all my hair, so I was stressed out a lot. <laughs> you still have yours. Well, I can tell yeah, I can tell you work out though. Uh, home bit. gym, yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you how many times preparing for a major trial, um, a big murder case or something, I'm going through all the arguments while I'm on a treadmill. Um, you're laying there on a, on a bench press, and as you're getting ready to, to um, you stop and you go, wait a minute, i got to write that down. And so you, you go back and you, and you write it down. Um, I would listen to evidence tapes on, um, by law professors to keep me really, really sharp on evidence while I was on a, on a treadmill or on, a, on an elliptical machine. So the short answer to that is um, dealing with the stress was uh, a lot of it home gym. That's what we did. And, um, and we, the kids and I played a lot. I mean, when I would finally shut all that off and go out and play, we would play really hard. Um, interesting, um, fallout from all of that is all my kids work out. <laughs> so that's, that's good. Yeah, that's very good. Um, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your campaign. So obviously you're running for Johnson County prosecutor. The... Part of that is, you know, obviously going out and advertising yourself. So I've never been a person who's ran for anything. Uh, I probably, I don't know if I ever will or not. What would be some advice for somebody who is going to be running a campaign or something for school board or for something for any local position? What would be some advice that you would have for them? Because you've done it multiple times. Yeah, there's uh, the first time around you have to, you're basically asking you're, you're trying to get a job interview with however many thousands of voters there are. These are the employers, and you're saying, give me the job. I think I'm the right person for the job, and here's why. So your campaign is your resume. And so the first time around, you're trying to show, here's all the, 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 um, here's all the aspects of my prior experience. Here's all of the, the training and, and education that I've had that makes me right for this job. Here's all my attributes. Please trust me with this. And here's what I plan to do and hold me to it if I ever run for re-election. After you've been elected and you've done it, then you can run on your record and you can say, I told you that I was going to put on training for the police. I told you I was going to win trials. I told you I was going to be accessible to the public, the people who elected me. Now, look at my record. We've won all those cases, put more people in, for example, as prosecutor, put more people in, more killers in prison than anybody else that's ever done the job. Um, we put on all that training for the law enforcement people and the fire people. And, um, and we've been accessible to the 
to the public when they call up and they want to talk to the prosecutor? By golly, they talk to the prosecutor. Um, so after the, the first time around, you can run on your record and say, um, um, I said I was going to do these things and I've done it. Um, one of the things that, that has been big in my campaign is I've had many, many letters and testimonials from uh, victims and um, people who that I worked with when I was prosecutor come forward and say um, everything that he said he was going to do, he did. So that's, that's a big part of the campaign. So when you were going door to door in the beginning, did you have any good stories about people slamming doors in your face or people cussing you out or you know throwing stuff at you? Amazingly, people are really nice and, and they're flattered that you care enough to come to their door. So I didn't I never I never did have that. I'm trying to think if I ever had anybody really I did have a few times where the dogs weren't too friendly to me because they didn't care what my platform was. They didn't want me invading their their territory. Um, and if they didn't have the um, the dog inside, then, you know, you pretty much got to have to bypass that one. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't remember anybody ever being mean or rude at the door. Um, I did have a few people when I ran the first time say things like, uh, well, I'm, I'm for the other guy. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I don't have any problem with that. And, but thanks for listening. And, um, I, I did enjoy the one-on-one conversations I was able to have with people. That's probably my favorite part of campaigning. Organizing, not so fun. Um, talking to people, lots of fun. <laughs> Organizing just sounds so painful. It, it sounds like painful. something I really don't want to do. Um, so you've answered a lot of these questions. You've answered this next question a couple times now, but I'm wanting to just kind of stick it to the to the pad. Why should the citizens of Johnson County vote for you to be their prosecutor? Because... I want the prosecutor's office to start winning again. And I have a proven record that that's what we do. Um, I, I know how to run the prosecutor's office. I did it for 18 years. I was the boss there for 18 years and we had a first rate prosecutor's office. We, as I said, we put away more killers than anybody else in Johnson County history. We have a, we had a winning record. Um, we had a really high winning record for sex crimes. Um, and, and as you know, those, those are really terrible, bad cases. And um, lives are destroyed through those kinds of crimes. And um, so the, the, the short answer is, I think that the prosecutor's office needs to start winning again, and I know how to do it. The the question I've always wanted to ask for a judge is if if you were to make a decision on making a sentence for somebody or creating a sentence, I mean, it's not really creating creating a sentence, but how do you go about the punishment for that person's crime? Is it the amount of like, if it was a misdemeanor, like, Hey, you're going to be doing six months in jail and then you have to do, you know, 60 hours of community service or somebody did a certain crime. Is there a certain layout that you can follow that says, okay, if the person commits this crime, they have to do a minimum five years. Obviously the state has something and then federally there's something, but for the localities, 
of like for Johnson County. Is there anything that's laid out like that? There are some minimum minimum mandatory sentences. Okay, that's a good um, way of putting it. And um, I mean that those are kind of long and complicated to go go through all of those. But when you're fashioning a sentence as a judge, you're looking at does this person need to be punished? Does this person need to be reformed? Is this person a good person who made a mistake? Is this person a really bad, evil person? I had a guy um, who did uh, multiple rapes, and essentially I gave him as much time as I possibly could because he's never going to turn it around. He's just, if he's out, he's going to be hurting people. And I, I had maximum sentences, so I gave him maximum sentence. Um, but as I said earlier, most people that stand in front of a court are not generally are not bad people. They are people who've made mistakes. And for example, I'll get a guy who's an upstanding, um, contributing, good father, um, hard worker, pays his taxes, gets arrested for drunk driving. Bad mistake. Um, but he's not a bad person. He just did a really dumb thing. And so when you, when you give a, a sentence to somebody like that, um, what you want to do is make sure that it never happens again. And I've had this conversation. Every criminal defense attorney in the county can tell you they've heard the speech over and over again. You need to work on your alcohol problem, but I'm, what I'm not going to tolerate is your alcohol problem getting transferred into a vehicle. You don't have to get behind the wheel of a car. You're not addicted to driving. You may have an alcohol problem, but you don't have a driving problem. That's a choice. You do that, and you're going to jail. And um, so it's each case literally is different. And what you're trying to do is figure out what is going to make sure this crime doesn't happen again. Is it a dangerous crime? Make sure it never happens again, number one. Number two, um, and before I go on, let me say this. Yeah, of course. You get a lot of people. Who you can, I can tell, I mean, you can read them like a book. They are sincerely sorry. They really don't want to do it again. But they get out into the world. They're on probation. They finish their probation. Things happen. And the circumstances present themselves again. And even though they made that commitment a long time ago, they forget. And then they commit the crime again. That's what I would often see with repeat drunk drivers. So I would take a person who I knew was remorseful. And I would tell them, I don't want to hurt you and I have no animosity towards you, but I do need to teach you a lesson. And I know right now you could pass a polygraph that you wouldn't drive drunk again. However, if the circumstances were presented again after you've had a, a period of time to forget about this, then you might. The reason why I'm going to send you to jail is because every time you're picking up an alcoholic beverage and thinking about getting behind the wheel of a car, you're going to remember Judge Hamner put me in jail for a long time last time I did that, and I'm not going to do it again. That memory thing, I think, is very helpful to turn somebody around. I literally had a woman who is one of my people that make me feel so good because she thanked me for what I did. And what she thanked me for was putting her in jail. She said, when you gave me that speech, I was very angry. And you sent me to jail. And she said, when I finished that jail term, I realized why you did it. And it turned my life around. And I think that when people, if you understand human psychology, 
you know that people want to turn things around, but they don't have in the old saying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, you can strengthen that flesh by giving somebody a hard sentence sometimes. And then that memory, that memory comes back to them when they're in those same circumstances again. And they go, wow, I learned a lesson sitting in jail for six months. I learned a lesson sitting in that jail cell, staring at those walls every day, thinking, why am I here when I'm a good person? And that turned them around. And um, so ultimately, with people who are not bad people, my goal was to make them make this good person not do something bad again. And I think we were was very successful doing that. I was really pleased with the with the feedback I've gotten from people. So one last question before we head out is, how would you start to win again as county prosecutor? Okay, and that, and. What I said was, um, I want the prosecutor's office to start winning again. And the way to do that is by better training for the prosecutors. As I was a member, I am a member of the faculty of the Trial Advocacy College, and I also taught trial advocacy at the law school. First of all, you need to get the prosecutors well-trained in how to present a case, number one. Number two, you need to run the prosecutor's office like a law firm, and that is the best qualified people should be doing the biggest and the toughest cases. It shouldn't be by seniority. It should be by ability and work ethic. So I would run it like a, pro- like a, a law firm. So better training, run it like a law firm, and have a closer relationship training the police officers. That's how I would make it start winning again. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation that I had with former Judge Lance Hamner. I know I enjoyed it. I always love talking with people. Really think about the things that he has said during this episode. Sit on it. Let it, you know, meditate with it. Make sure you know what decision is going to be best for your family and also for the county as well. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please like, comment, subscribe. I have a Facebook as well that you can go follow. It's more with Stumpo. Also an Instagram, more with Stumpo on Instagram. Go ahead and give that a follow as well. Let me know what you think down at the bottom and uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Have a blessed day.